Welcome to the Game Changers podcast. We are your hosts, Associate Professor of Education and Enterprise, Philip Cummins, and prominent educational thought leader, Adriano Prado. The Game Changers podcast aims to not only put a spotlight on the innovative ideas shaping the landscape of 21st century schooling, but to enter into a deep dialogue with those brave pioneers, the true game changers in education, those individuals that don't wait for permission, leaders in education who are actually courageous enough to make real change in their learning community as they foster the growth of each young person in their care to ultimately thrive in this new world environment. These are their stories. If you're going to change the game of school, then sometimes you need to start from scratch. If you're going to change the game of school, then sometimes you need to change it from the inside out. If you're going to change the game of school, sometimes you need to build a school within a school. If you're going to change the game of school, you need to think carefully about what you do and then summon up all the courage that you have to take the big step forward and up Esther Hill is doing that with the studio school in Fremantle in Western Australia right now. There are so many educators around the world who are intrigued with this project and are just dying to learn more about what this remarkable educator is doing with her team to transform what school might be and what school will be. I'm excited, I can't wait, let's go. Before we start our conversation with today's Game Changers guest, Phil, can you share with our audience a little insight into our Series 12 sponsor? Thanks, Adriano. Of course, we are proud to be partnered with the education team of the Museum of Australian Democracy at Old Parliament House in Canberra, Australia's capital city. Looking for civics and citizenship experiences and resources to empower voice and agency in your Australian classroom? The MOAD Learning Team have got you covered with on-site and online experiences for teachers and young people of all ages. Visit MOAD Learning at M-O-A-D-O-P-H dot gov dot A-U forward slash learning. That's M-O-A-D-O-P-H dot gov dot A-U forward slash learning. Bill, I'm really excited to be with our guest Esther Hill today. But before we get to our esteemed colleague Esther, Phil, uh, how are you going today? How is the People's Democratic Republic of Fitzroy treating the quinoa groupies? Uh, look, you know, yet again, the sun is out. Mm-hmm. Yet again, Bravo, the Wonder Dog, has found a little patch of sun to sit in. Yet again, I'm contemplating whether or not my next coffee will be sullied by the wrong form of milk or whether or not I'm just going to have a standard flat white with two sugars. It's yeah. a gorgeous day. How's Sunshine West treating you, mate? So the, the, the West of Sunshine is always doing very well. And considering we're in the same city, uh, the sun is shining, which we're very fortunate about. It's my favourite time of the year in Melbourne in spring. Very glorious. And uh, it, it, it also prevents, with the sunshine shining, any gangland killings out in the West, which is fantastic. It's always great. When Excellent. Let's go to Perth, Adriana. Let's go to Let's Anyway, enough of this nonsense. Let's go to Fremantle. Esther, thank you for being on Game Changes. We are going to obviously ask you a whole series of questions about the the phenomenal work that's happening at the studio school. But before we get to that, I'm going to ask you a question that we ask all of our guests. And that is, tell us a little bit about your story and how have you gotten to where you are today? That's like the big question, Adriana. That's not like a small question. It's the big question. My journey as a student was pretty rubbish. I went to a scholarship high school for music and I was a rebel. I didn't like 
the way that I was taught and I was given no freedom, given no agency in what I what I was going to learn. I was smart and so I was channeled into doing high-level maths, physics, chemistry and I, I never had a conversation about what I was going to do. I was just channeled into those things and so I fought against that and did everything that I could to fail but managed just to not fail. But my experience really made me think that I would never, ever in, in my life want to be in a school and be a teacher. But someone said to me along the way, um, teaching, you'd be a great teacher because you hated it so much. <laughs> and and so I went and did a, a Bachelor of Arts and loved the learning around things that I was passionate about, about literature and philosophy. And it, it was only because... I was living out at home and needed money that I thought I'm going to have to go and get a get something that gets me money. So I went and went and did a, um, a grad diploma in education, and I stepped into the classroom for the first time, and I never looked back. You know, as soon as I walked into a classroom with a room full of students, and from the moment I worked, walked into a classroom, I was really determined that that experience was going to be different, mm-hmm. and that. At the central focus of that was about learners taking control of what they were, you know, how and what they learnt and having a real sense of agency. And that's characterised, you know, my career as an English teacher, as a head of faculty, as a uh, person who's managing, uh, you know, professional learning and, and then, you know, in, in leadership. I've been chasing that, that piece around learner agency the whole time and fostering ways both in micro but also in macro ways that that students can have agency. And so I find myself now, I think 10 years ago, I said to colleagues, I really want to start a school where we start from scratch and that's kind of where we are now. Starting a school from scratch that, that has at the heart of it a young person and what we build around that young person is what they learn and, and the pieces of their education rather than taking an education system and, and putting a, a child into it. So switching the, you know, the locus of control from system to the young person. Um, and that's really where the studio school comes in. We're, we're going to talk a lot about the studio school and your, your work in this space, particularly around the value of personalising pathways for, for young people in in the care of uh, the Studio School and All Saints. But I want to stay on Esther for a little bit longer before we move into that space. You were successful in winning a, a position in a school through a scholarship, music scholarship, what you mentioned. And what struck you about that experience you just shared was one that challenged you as, as a student and that you really wanted to push back on what was being presented to you as schooling. Where do you feel this challenger um, agency was born from? There's probably an internal part and there's an external part. My father was a strong Marxist and he said, and I used to say Marxism's dead, and he would say, come the revolution, you'll be the first one against the wall. I think Adriana and I might join you in that one there. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) yeah, so so there was there was a strong sense of um, of that that came from my dad, my yep. dearly beloved dad and dearly departed dad. But there was a strong sense of it that came that came from me in that 
I was really quick as a student to identify when I switched on and switched off and what switched me on and what switched me off to learning and how much that that how much that how important that was and you know I I had friends who had extrinsic motivators around around that learning whose families pushed them or you know those kinds of things or they were motivated by grades Uh, and I never was it was never I was never motivated by those things so it was really you know the only learning experiences that I really valued were very human and very personalized so, so what I'm hearing you say is that the best parts of your high school experience were ones that allowed that that permissioned personalization and and allowed you to reveal so much more of yourself. Yeah, the the best experiences that I had in high school were really, really human, deeply relational, deeply relational, and and very, very much centered on me as a human being mm-hmm. and as a learner secondary. What were the worst learning experiences for you as a student? What did they look like in terms of, and what did they feel like when you were encountering them? <laughs> my, my worst learning experience uh, was absolutely and without doubt physics. And I had this physics teacher whose name was Gibbo. And Gibbo just served it up mm-hmm. and served it up. And if you didn't eat, then you needed to leave the room. So, so my worst learning experience was spent outside of Gibbo's classroom because I just I couldn't I couldn't play ball with that. Um, and sit, so, sit and get. Yeah, sit and get, serve it up and and eat mm-hmm. eat what's on the table and and you know give it back to me. And I just I just couldn't do it. I actually I, as a human I couldn't do it. You know I had to, I had to I had to leave the room. I'd rather sit out the room. What did it make you feel like though when when you were experiencing that kind of sit and get paradigm? What it made me feel was usually that rebellious streak. So it's often channeled into uh, a rage against systems and people and and what you know what gets in the way. Um, so that's I think at that stage you know it was it was experienced as a refusal and a rebellion and it, it was an anger um, versus any kind of sadness or shutdown. It was an anger. Thank you very much for sharing what's really deeply personal about your own journey of high school. It's really interesting in what you're sharing about those moments of real lightness and hope and those real moments that, that felt quite suffocating and strangling. And, and, and then so much of that plus your own formation with dad and, and, and perhaps others has now influenced you and in become the type of educator that you are today. So much of your extraordinary work that you've been able to accomplish in your career, particularly at All Saints, and now more recently with the Studio School, is also influencing other educators and the sector to think very differently about what matters in school and what matters in learning, and that it is deeply human-centred. Who else now in your professional life has influenced you on your learning journey and your leadership journey, and why are they a significant influence. Yeah, I've had a few um, a few people who've been significant for me who challenged me and challenged um, my thinking around around what education can and and might be. One of them is certainly Yong Zhao. Mm-hmm. Yong Zhao um, worked with us at All Saints for a number of years and raised some really good questions and. 
probably introduced the the thought of a school within a school um, type model, which we we went and researched and, and looked into that kind of model and, and moved away from that idea. But certainly the, the kind of essence of um, that idea of starting a school where I think what happens in transforming schools often is that you're trying to change something which already exists and something which is often re- already very really, really successful. And so having something new that you're starting from scratch that people are buying into, you know, I'm choosing the thing that you're you're selling, you know, this this model, this different model. I'm choosing that. I'm not having it imposed on my kids and I've, you know, I'm not I'm not choosing that. So so Young was quite influential in that. Um, Peter Hutton, Future Schools Alliance has been a really strong critical friend for me over a long period of time. And he he has asked really good questions of me. He's challenged my thinking. He's pushed me in terms of student agency piece and he's been a real champion of student agency and has done some some really fantastic things. So he's he's been a real influence for me and a real support for me to ask me those challenging questions. Often when you're sitting on the edge, um, there aren't that many people who are over the edge who are in practice and doing things. And so, you know, to have those people who have experienced and done those things is really, really valuable. Mm-hmm. Um, and I find in Australia they're, you know, they're thin on the ground, you know, people who've gone off the edge. You know, a lot of people sit on the edge but they don't go off the edge. And so so those those two have really been quite significant and they're you know they're change makers and game changers in in themselves i'm sitting here and listening to you and adriana having a fantastic conversation there esther um and you mentioned that word choice i want to pick up on that if i if, if i can why is choice so important in promoting student agency without choice you're really imprisoned you know that's that's how i experience the lack of choice you know it's 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 like a cage I think we we disempower young people from a very young age with the illusion that there is no choice, that this is the way that you do it, and this is the you know there's there's kind of a there are mindsets and and, and um, mental models that are really limiting our young people and really limiting our adults too, you know. And I think I think choice and ownership of those choices because you can have choice but not own own the choices that you're making. So I think that they're, they're, they're both paired together. So it's not just choice, it's ownership of the choice as well. And that's interesting, isn't it? Because quite often people say that you need ownership before you can make the choice. But actually, I think I think you're right. More often than not, you need to choose something. You imagine what it's going to be, but you're choosing, um, you're choosing the promise, you're choosing the hope of something, and then, you're gonna, then, then you have to own the consequences of it. And the consequences of it are... Never as um, never as naughty or as never as nice as you think they're going to be. They just they, they just are um, what they are. I, I, if I can, I want to follow up with the choice thing one more time because you talked about systems earlier. Um, systems are populated by people. People make a choice to operate within a system. People make a choice in a classroom not to allow personalization of learning, but to dish it up. Instead, how can we help our colleagues to make better choices so that they do the things that are necessary to promote student choice and ownership to to unlock them from the prison of the system? 
Yeah, I, I think I think it's tricky, and I you know I acknowledge how um, all encompassing, and you know I've spent a lot of my career really trying to find ways to work within systems because we all have to work within systems, and I think we have to, we have to really interrogate. I think I think we all have to interrogate the why behind the moves that we make, and really interrogate whether that is a system piece or whether that is a um, an organization piece or whether that is a practical piece you know because it's because it's messy and hard to give young people choice and it's unpredictable and it's it's loose and it's you know those those things those things don't sit well with uh, an hour class and a, um, a structured timetable and, you know, having 1,500 kids in a school and all of those kinds of things, you know, like it's it's tough to do that. But I think we have to really interrogate, you know, is this a system piece or is this just habit? Or is this a system piece or are we just doing this because it's the easiest way to do it? So I think that interrogation and that challenge that we offer ourselves is really important. And thinking about the outcome, I... I uh, interview every student who wants to come to the studio school and I talk to them about you know that idea of if you have choice where would you take it and one of the most disturbing things is how young people are not able to answer that question yeah we we disable them by not giving them the opportunity to choose you know we funnel them and we take away that agency and, and so therefore they have no agency and then they're not agents um, of their learning and that's you know if there's if there's something that drives us as educators to give choice we want our we want our young people to be to be choosers and agents when they're adults so why on earth do we not want them to be that when they're young people are they going to suddenly have that when they leave school you know or do they fall in a heap once they have that you know a lot of our young people do because they're not given that opportunity to learn safely how to choose and to have agency. Yeah, it's one of the challenges of working with any system, uh, within any system, is all of the danger that you're talking about there and all of the risk that you're talking about there. Um, we have a terrific, well, we think it's terrific, app called Voyage, which is all about student character development through self-determination. Um, when we give that to extremely well-schooled 17, 18-year-old British students, who have spent every waking moment and probably all in their dreams since the age of 11, working out how to get those few prize places at the top of the greasy pole that will get them into the next top position, the next one. And what they've learned is the character of test-taking rather than the character that they'll need to thrive in the world, in a world beyond examinations. How can leaders in schools build a more authentic view of assessment and the role of assessment in their schools? Um, I think I think this is, you know, it's a value proposition, isn't it, you know, around what is the purpose of schools? You know, is the purpose of schools to get kids high marks or is it to understand what is and what isn't being learned and to understand how to develop a young person along a trajectory and give that feedback, you know, it's, it's, it's a value proposition around that. And I don't think anyone denies that we're not just about marks and grades. Like I, don't, I, don't, I don't think anyone thinks that anymore. I think that no one thinks that that's what schools are all about. 
Um, you know, there might be a few that, that do, but, you know, there is, there's a, you know, there's a mandate, there's a, there's a declaration in, in our world, in our education world around, you know, we're developing young people who will be resilient and innovative and, and these kinds of things. And so there's, there's a mandate around, around that, that piece that assessment needs to deal with those things and not just be a competition for numbers. Um, and, you know, Yong's fantastic on this around th that competition is fantastic for the top 10%. For the rest of them, it's a pretty poor experience, you know, and the whole thing of ranking students and getting a 99.95 means that there's all these people that are down the, you know, down the other end. So, if so, so yes, yeah, so I just want to jump in there, all right? So I'm, I'm going to be the devil's advocate in this conversation for, because I feel I want to create some shade. <laughs> to the lights that you're sharing in many ways. Those who are so wedded to a particular perspective on the science of learning and that everything is evidence-based and research-based, based, of course, on their own research <laughs> and the, the research that serves them well, uh, will say, what's wrong with competition? That's the way the world works. The world has those who have, the world has those that have not. And that's the, the reality of our world. And all of you who are wanting to go down this path of, of inquiry and project-based learning and design thinking and students co-creating their learning, you're all misguided. You're all misguided because that's not the way the world is. The world is not structured that way. And let's create systems that provide young people with the reality of the world that they're about to inherit. How do we resolve that? How do we resolve that that type of thinking is not no longer uncommon? There are systems in Australia right now, whole systems that are retreating and abandoning any type of agency with students in their care and believing that explicit instruction is the only way to deliver learning to someone, that the student has to behave and be respectful and silent and let learning happen to them. How do we, how do we counteract a, a large movement across the globe who subscribe to that way of thinking and are pining in a return to a legacy piece that is more than just about control and compliance? It, to them, it's about order and the way in which things should be. I'm the adult, you're the student, and simply do as I say. Yeah, look, I think there's been so much work that's been done on the counter to that, um, and that work you know, a lot of really great work came out of the Foundation for Young Australians, a few, you know, quite a few years ago now around um, addressing that piece that says that that's what the world is like because actually the world is not like that and workplaces largely are not like that and the skill set that is needed for young people to thrive, for old people to thrive, now in the world of work um, is certainly driven by a, a set of capabilities which are absolutely not manifest in that type of teaching and learning, that type of pedagogy. You know, it's absolutely, um, you know, the work that we've been doing with the University of Melbourne really shows that, you know, when, when you go to measure the capability of collaboration, which looks like it's in every single job ad that you can read, you need to be a great collaborator, that actually if you're sitting in a physics class doing your ATAR physics course, you're not learning 
anything around collaboration or you're not really learning how to problem solve when you when you're doing your your English paper or your this paper you know there's there's so much evidence around that and workplaces um, I think one of the thing that's things that's really changed in the last couple of years and this is I'm being Pollyanna or polyester here. One of the things that's really changed, I think, is, is the way that our families, the families of young people, and I'm a parent of a of a of some of teenage kids as well, you know, that the families are experiencing those those changes in their own workplace. Mm-hmm. And they understand that they don't want a kid graduating school who only has good marks. And, you know, the other piece that's happening, there's two parts that are happening there. Universities are really challenging that whole I'm going to take the top of the heat through ATAR because they're taking them however, you know, they get through. But also what you do at university is also being transformed. You know, university courses are no longer um, setting those all of those examinations. They're, you know, you work in collaboratively with a group of students or you're, you know, you're doing project-based pieces and, you know, it's very, very different and it's been transformed. And so I guess the argument to those those folks who are still wedded to that, and I'm not saying that there's not a place for ex- explicit instruction in some mm. areas, It's that's not the case. And it, at some times that, you know, explicit instruction is, is one of many strategies that you can use for particular particular you know learning needs and at particular points it's it's a it's a tried and tested strategy but if it's the only strategy then it's going to limit what comes out the other side for our young people and you know that's not acceptable in this day and age thank you for sharing that response organizations like the foundation for young australians have provided us with deep research and an insight of what could be and and what currently is the reality of of the world in which we're living in and the world which we're going to inherit. Many of those, of course, that only subscribe to their version of the science of learning, right? Because it's their version of science of learning because there's lots of elements to that, but they've got a particular version of it. Um, Are also sceptical of futurists and people who are predicting what what the world's going to be like. But what's interesting is um, what they fail to recognise is that organisations like FYA or even the foundation, sorry, even um, the World Economic Forum, they're actually predicting the world as it is, <laughs> not, not, not just about what's going to happen down the track and, and that we need to be working backwards very quickly to equip young people with the skills, not only to thrive in the world of work, because that's not our objective just with schools, but it's also to simply thrive in life and, and in living and in learning and in relationships and so on. So let's now shift the conversation to the hope and optimism of the studio school, yeah, because I'm really excited for people to hear about what's being created in this space. So I've got two fundamental questions. I'm gonna, my first one is this. The meaning of student empowerment varies between teachers, schools and communities, and it's clear that teachers want and need the opportunity to develop understanding about um, how to do this notion of student empowerment together. So many are wanting to to really understand this in a way. For you, what does empowering and an equitable classroom for every child actually look like in the practice of the studio school? First and foremost, it starts with the young person and we build from that young person out. So rather than saying, here's what you can do, choose it, or, you know, get in that system or not giving any choice and this is what you're doing. It starts with that young person and we, we, um, we talk about 
Japanese concept of ikigai, mm-hmm. you know, how, how is it that we can live a fulfilling life? You know, what does a fulfilling life look like? And so for us that's what do you love? What are you good at? How might that fit with potential careers and professions? You know, we're a school. We're in the business of getting you on a pathway to something that you can do beyond school. So that's a part of it too. And then the fourth part of that is how can we support you with your unique gifts, talents, abilities to add value to the world? Because young people can add value to the world right now. They don't need to wait They're not like citizens in waiting. They're citizens of the now and they've got so much to offer. So we start with building a program around that Ikigai model, which is, you know, how how can we make your life fulfilling now? How can we tap into what you love? How can we tap into what you're good at? And, you know, the skills that you want to build, how how can we make that happen? And so we've got a bunch of vehicles that allow that that to play out and you know alongside that there are the system pieces you know they do have to do maths and English and science and humanities and all of those kinds of pieces uh, as integrated as we can be and as personalized as they can be um, for that that young person but we build we build that space and the two the two vehicles that we have for that are firstly the projects that the students are involved in and the second part is the openness of the space and the time to explore and to be able to do that. Because what we often do in high schools is that we fill every moment with a thing that they need to do because we adults are so all-seeing and knowing that we know that every moment on a timetable needs to be filled and it's a compliance thing, yeah, like where they've got to be somewhere so we bung them in classes and they do this class and that class and electives and this and that, and we fill them and we give them, you know, all of these experiences. We never give them space because when you've got space, you can fill it. When you don't have space, you can't, you know, you can't do anything. That's, and so space is actually a fundamental part of agency because when you've got space, you can move in it and you can, you can take things and you can pull them into that space. When you don't have space, you just do what you're told, yeah? Yeah, I, I love that. So much about what we talk, we've been talking about on this particular series is this notion of transformation um, of through, through the notion of permission. And, and permission is fundamentally about uh, creating the space to say yes to yourself and your, and, and your inherent possibility towards doing something that's, that's intrinsically part of who you are. Okay, so I love what you're sharing here around this empowerment piece. We're starting in a very personalised way with the individual, there is a deep listening and understanding about who they are and their identity to ensure that they have a deep sense of belonging. That's what I'm picking up. I'm also then hearing the adults enter into a exchange dialogue with these young people about what it is that they are passionate about, what it is that they are interested about, what it is that they want to share with the world. And then I'm also hearing the systems component come into play there because the systems is not just about then the mechanics of what how we do school right now, but the systems component is also one that is deeply rooted in community and how we can continue to partnership beyond our boundaries and allow these young people to, to, to not only develop the mastery knowledge and skill, but then to iterate through its application and transfer in real world contexts with community. Really powerful stuff that you're sharing with our audience. 
It's in, its intention is purposeful and it is deeply human-centered. And you're tapping into augmenting some of that with technology. Uh, some of that technology is analog. Some of that technology is digital, you know. Um, uh, and, but it's deeply also people, place and planet-centered as well. So there's some beautiful, there's a beautiful ecosystem that's being born through the studio school kind of project. In 2018, I, I wrote a blog titled The Future Is Now. And, and I mentioned uh, in it five considerations that I'd like for teachers and schools of the future. The first is that we need to move from, from notion of school to community, that we can't continue to operate as if we're living separate from everything that goes beyond our, our, our gates. The second component about the future is now is the value of digital literacy. And that, that, that's a whole communication wraparound piece around numeracy and, sorry, numeracy and literacy, but it's also about the digital component. How are we going to navigate through that space as ethically? What's the value to it as we move into a world that artificial intelligence and machine learning become a little more and more pervasive? The third component of this piece that I wrote was around the notion of moving from standards to habits. That yes, standards have a place within school, but if we can cultivate habits that become part of our mindset, that become part of our way of being, there's a greater chance that we're going to be uh, really successful when we take on the world beyond our school. The fourth was the significance of place and how do we continue to serve that place and understand our local context and, and, and the nuance of that. And the last, of course, is the rise of individual learning plans. There appears to be some synergy in those five considerations that I wrote back then with the aspiration of the studio school. Why do we need our schools to focus a greater emphasis on individual, individual needs of students and their personalised pathways? Why do we need that in today's world? I think, um, I think there's two parts to that. Adriana, that I'd probably want to speak to, and one's one's about um, one's about the the individual, and the other is about community. I loved actually what what Peter Senge said about culture. You know, culture starts inside, and then becomes you know then you've got the the community piece, and so I think that's that's why you know we we absolutely see all people as needing to be able to express themselves, add value to the world, understand themselves, you know, all of those kinds of pieces. And, you know, why do, why do you need to start with the individual? Individuals flourish when they are seen, when they are valued, when they are heard, when they are responded to. They don't necessarily flourish. Some do. They don't necessarily flourish when they're just one of many, yeah? And so that individual piece is, is a flourishing piece. You know, we, we see you, we value you, we are listening to you, we're responding to you, and therefore we're supporting you to flourish. You know, that's our position. And so every student has an individual um, learning plan and that individual learning plan changes all the time. You know, there's... You know, young people, when they're given space, their interests and passions shift and change. When you expose um, young people to community and what community is up to, mm -hmm. their interests and passions change. Mm -hmm. If they're just in a classroom and doing the classroom stuff, they're not exposed to the world 
as it is, you know. And so, so that outside piece, that community piece is so important. So it's a fundamental component of what we do here is connect young people to community. And that's for their individual projects where they, they might be running a business and so they, they need some mentorship from somebody who's running a business or somebody who's, you know, doing something, some, some way to support them. It might be through our community projects. So we, we have numerous community projects on the go at any one time. So at the moment we've got community projects with a tech company that's designing a mental health care app and they're working with um, designing that app with some of our students. We've got students who are working collaboratively with a playwright to produce a play with a local primary school. We've got students who have partnered with Good Sammy's and the op shop that's opening just around the corner and they're yeah, doing awesome. window displays and, you know, all of these. And so in each of these, in each of these spaces, these young people are being exposed to processes, people, places, opportunities, interactions, you know, all of those, and that feeds back into their themselves and their sense of who they are. And that, you know, you see that growth and flourishing as as their world expands and their world, you know, world the world that they see changes. And so that that connection with community that, um, you know, I um I directed our institute, which is called the Beyond Boundaries Institute, and it's very much about that, you know, going beyond the boundaries of school boundaries of silos, boundaries of all of these pieces that we think, you know, we're caged in, we, we're not. And those those components are just so fundamental. Esther, as you're portraying this vision of something that is um, beyond what is right now, and, and, you know, we would talk about that notion of, of going from being to becoming. So it's in a state of becoming. There is a significant danger that not only the teachers, but particularly leaders in educational institutions who are aiming to go beyond and to do things differently will exhaust themselves because they will attend to the flourishing of others rather than their own flourishing. So, Esther Hill, what are you doing to attend to your own flourishing? (laughs) I'm blessed that I live 10 minutes walk from a beautiful beach so that I can, you know, walk walk and pound that sand for hours if I need to in order to decompress. But, you know, there's a lot of reward that comes from this work, Phil. Like, you know, really the reward, and I mentioned uh, that young man who we spoke to, I spoke to this morning with his folks here and the growth that you see in these young people. It's exhausting. Actually, working in a space like this is, is very different you know, the, the kind of, it's kind of disembodied a lot of the teaching that we do in a classroom and then the kids leave, you know, see you later, it's the end of your 55-minute period, off you go, and then they go, and then you've got dot, and then, you know, duties other than teaching, I don't know what you call it, um, the rest of Australia, but uh, we call it dot here, duties other than teaching. So you've got that time in your staff room. In a studio space, you don't have a staff room. You don't have, you don't have, you know, that kind of, See you later, kitties. You know, you're off off you go. They're in the space with you all the time. So there's there's a really interesting intensity to this work, which is exhausting. And you know, we're having to explore different models of staffing because traditional models of, you know, how many periods a week does a traditional teacher teach in a space like this, they just go out the window. They don't work. Yeah, tell us what that looks like. What 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 is the right? I mean, this is, this is one of the things I'm fascinated by. I mean, I'm, I I genuinely believe that we can no longer 
continue to conceive of the role of the teacher in the way that we've done for 100, 120, 150 years. Because the simple reality is that if we're going to teach to the 21st century dispositions, which Adriano would argue have always been there, but nonetheless, these are the ones, these are the skill sets that employers and that the world of work and everything needs. If we're going to teach to that, if we're going to teach to excellence, which is, I think, you know, what most teachers really want to do these days, if we're going to pour our heart and soul and vocation into it, if we're going to be compliant with all the things we do, we can't conceive of the role of the teacher the way we did when I went into the profession in the 1980s. What does it look like? What what are you playing with? What's it like in your sandpit for teachers? Yeah, look, um, our teachers are truly facilitators of learning. You know, what it looks like is we meet in the studio school, we meet before school each day and we map out, we have a master timetable, which is kind of the, the kind of bare bones of what the timetable looks like and where we do our instructional periods and those kinds of things. But every day we meet and we adjust it to how does that day look and what are the opportunities that we have, you know, what's going on in the community. You know, there's an exhibition down the road that we'd love to take students to, so how can we flex the time? So so it's highly flexible and um, highly responsive. It may be that we have kids who aren't well and, you know, things aren't... So rather than just churning along and, you know, continuing with that learning, we, we flex it and we change it. Um, it looks like teaching less and being present more, yeah? So teaching less, less instruction. If you really, you know, in a classroom, if you think about how much time you actually need those young people to be bang in front of you, when you're in a co-working space, they can move, they can be in a classroom space and they can move and be wherever else they want to be to, to continue that learning that you started them on and then they can come and check back in with you it's really interesting to see how much time you actually need to be teaching them you know that changes as well I think we need to do that duties other than teaching piece differently so I want I want my teachers to be able to be off-site yeah not on-site off-site you know that whole thing where you have to trap teachers in the space and keep them on-site just in case you need them for something or other. Like, why do we? Why are we doing that? You know, they need freedom and agency as well. It's the only job that I know where you can't leave without getting well, permission. The, well, the, well, the reason the reason why we do that is because we don't trust them. So I, I've got one more question, then I'm going to wrap up for you, if we can, because I could, man, I, I could listen to you all day. You are an absolute inspiration. You are the sole Western Australian champion for Sandra Milligan's New Metrics for Success project, spearheaded by the University of Melbourne Assessment Research Centre, which you made mention of earlier on. What commitment do you personally make to your own metrics for success? This studio school, as I said, I've been talking about it for 10 years and it was five years in the planning and the making and the pitching and the getting board approval and all those kinds of things. So... In, in some ways, you know, there's a metric around there about, about getting something up and running and being in this startup year, you know, this is our startup year. And it's, but I tell you, the metrics of success is that young person that I met with this morning who's moved from being um, a young person who was disenfranchised and disengaged to being a flourishing young man who's ready to take on the next challenge. And I can, I can, I'd love you to be here and, you know, I almost want to take my 
um, computer and walk you downstairs so that you can see all of these young people and, and what they're like because they are they are they're the metric of success that's it's their flourishing which which is uh, so evident in uh, not in the marks and grades you know in the way that they come in in the morning and the 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 way that they leave in the afternoon in the way that at the end of the day they lead the debrief session with the, with the students and with the staff and ask, what was good about today? You know, the kids are leading those sessions and debriefing us on how our day was. You know, that's a metric of, you know, there's, there's our success. Uh, you know, those are, those are the things, those stories and those, those pieces that we see every day here um, in this very unique and very wonderful thing. And, and you know, I'm, I'm very privileged to have had the support of All Saints and the board and a principal who is, you know, incredible to make this happen and to trust trust me and trust us and to trust trust the the ideas because you know when when you start something like this you're selling an idea because I think Adriana you talked before about um, you know schools that that want to have research you know this kind of research piece around success and you know what are those strategies and where's your evidence and there's no evidence to suggest that this is going to work. You know, we've done our research and we've looked at different models, but we have to actually be brave and step out off the edge sometimes and try something because if you don't try something, then you won't know whether it works. And now we've got the evidence. So now let's build that evidence and share that evidence. That's what I want to do so that um, you can say here it is and it is successful for these young people mm -hmm. and um we can all benefit from that. So, you know, come and look at it and see how it works. I, I, I would argue, though, Esther, that there are elements of what you what you are doing in practice that has rich evidence. I mean, the fact that, that you are that you are utilising design thinking protocols uh, and, and elements of project-based learning and doing it properly, uh, where you are also where you're also informing some of that with instruction when it's required. Um, I would suggest that all of those things have a rich vein of evidence and have had evidence for a very long time about the, the positive impact it does in terms of a human-centred approach about transformation of the individual and the places and practice we serve. I cut you off there, Esther, also not only to say that, but to say to Phil... It is, it is so refreshing when, we, when we've done a lot of these conversations, Esther, so it's so refreshing that when we get to be able to sit down with an individual that is not only passionate and deeply purposeful in what you do, but you are deeply people and planet centred and everything about the studio school is about a practice that is heroing those other things of the people and our planet and helping young people understand with this agency and they're and leaning into their responsibility comes an opportunity for them to craft a more unjust, sustainable world. And there's something beautifully altruistic about that. And there's something beautifully um, more significant than just me in all of that. There's a vocational call in all of this. And uh, Esther, I just want to say uh, thank you very much. I feel, feel we could do an entire series with Esther <laughs> and, um, we're going to talk offline, Esther, around how we're going to be looking at some uh, game-changing tours in 2023, and we're hoping that Western Australia and the Studio School would be open to us hosting one of those 
and, and allowing young people, not only young people, but adults to see the practice of what matters in what we should really be measuring in our schools today. Thank you for being on Game Changers. Pleasure. Game Changers is a podcast for those who want to change the game of school. Produced by Oliver Cummins for Orbital Productions and powered by our School for Tomorrow, Game Changers is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play and SoundCloud. Tell your friends and don't forget to subscribe. Let's go.